right, guys, uh, let's go ahead and get started. Father, we give you thanks for uh, the fact that you communicate to us in a comprehensible way. You, the infinite, eternal, and unchangeable God who made all things out of nothing and have made us as uh, co-heirs over your creation, uh, you've chosen to speak to us in comprehensible ways, ways in which we can know and learn and love. So, Father, as we seek to communicate today, as we seek to uh, hear and understand your word, we pray that you would be a blessing to us, help us to grasp Christ and his love for us in all of its fullness. Hear us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so today we're going to be looking at speaking in tongues. And uh, I entitled your handout... Uh, it's usually a bad sign, a not exhaustive examination of the curse and gift of tongues. Um, it's not going to be exhaustive, but it's going to be really suggestive because we're going to be dealing with the major passages that deal with things like the purpose of tongues. Um, and so there's always a tension in the church when we uh, look at things concerning Christian doctrine or practice do we run straight to the book of Acts and see how things are practiced and consider that normative? Or do we look at specific didactic passages, passages where there's clear teaching on things? And then there's tension there. Um, so there will certainly be some tension here today. Um, some of you might be fans of speaking in tongues. Some of you not so much. And uh, I, I hope that everybody has something they can take away from this in terms of learning on, on the topic. Okay. Um, so, uh, basically I'm taking a paper that I wrote, I don't know, 20 years ago and summarizing it, so we'll see how that goes, all right? Um, so, first off, um, I, I just want to, we're, my basic thesis is that we're going to be seeing that speaking in tongues is usually a bad thing. Now, if you're a, a, a believer that's uh, like me, I participated in some of the, you know, uh, Borderline charismatic movement churches. Uh, my particular flavor of church was the Calvary Chapel. So you, there was a fine line you had to walk, which was avoid Calvinism and charismania, right? If you avoid those two extremes, you're probably okay. Um, but of course, that means that I rubbed shoulders with both the Calvinist people and the charismania people, right? Maybe people like Vineyard and others where speaking in tongue was more common. Um, so, I, you know, these are practical issues that, you know, you're going to encounter believers, and uh, just shutting them down with, we don't do that, uh, probably isn't the best. Um, so, right out of the gate, uh, you know, I primary purpose of tongues, in my view, is that it is a curse of the covenant. It's bad news in most situations, and it's, even in the New Testament era, it's something you need to be really careful with because of the Old Covenant baggage, which is it's a curse, okay? So that's where I'm coming from, and yeah, personally, I'm a cessationist. I believe that, you know, tongues have ceased, okay? Um, we're not going to get into every possible consideration you could have here, but we're going to look at the major passages that deal with uh, tongues as a sign, especially the ones that are unfolded in 1 Corinthians 14. Here's a little historical prologue. So since the supposed outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the late 1800s and early 1900s, tongue speaking has flourished in what's become known as Pentecostal bodies. What used to be sort of a small, minor movement has become largely mainstream. Uh, 
By my count, in 2001, uh, mainstream Pentecostal churches alone accounted for about 16% of Protestant church membership. Okay? For the most part, as Reformed people, we've simply ignored these groups and their unintelligible utterances, and we've written about them from theological journals from afar. We're really good at that as the Reformed. However, what once is the fringe group with questionable practices has become more mainstream. Um, when I was a, uh, under the care of the Southern California Presbytery of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, we had a, uh, a minister, a, a, uh, a good guy in many ways. He had some place in his understanding for speaking in tongues in the Christian life now. And, you know, we had a trial and dealt with them as Presbyterians would and in my view should. But I just, that's an illustration that, like, you know, this is a, a live issue in the church oftentimes and it's something we need to wrestle with. Uh, and, and the way that Presbytery dealt with it is they shut him down um, in a gracious way. Um, now, some of the issues here from our perspective, because, you know, our opening chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, section 1, basically says all of this stuff all of these different ways whereby God revealed himself in the past through the prophets, etc. So it's, it says here, um, you know, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will to the church, uh, and he expresses a, a bunch of different ways. Um, I don't know. This is how it ends up with, though. Uh, they committed the same, that is Scripture, holy unto writing, which maketh the Holy Scripture to be most necessary. Those former ways of God's revealing His will, prophecy, speaking in tongues, etc., having now been ceased. So right out of the gate, our church's confession comes out really strong. We're cessationists, okay? Um, now, of course, it's the confession. You could argue biblically for another position and maybe convince everybody, but historically, it's not where we've been. So this paper is uh, an attempt to add to some, some literature from the Reformed, you know, why, why do we? Why are we cessationists, right? We're not just stodgy old people and we don't want to, you know, get excited and, and, and express our emotions. Um, it's, uh, you know, uh, the joke, Raul Reese, which was a Calvary Chapel pastor, um, you know, like I said, Calvary avoids the extremes of charismania and Calvinism. And uh, Raul Reese went to a charismatic service with a female friend, and she rode him on, there on the back of a Honda motorcycle. And there was the pressure. You've got to show the evidence that you've received the second work of the Spirit. And all he could think in the peer pressure of the moment was, she rode a Honda, she rode a Honda, she rode a Honda. So that was sort of his, his take on it, which, of course, is a really smart-alecky thing to do. Um, but... You know, what, uh, is that why, you know, as Reformed, but we just, like, not emotional? Is that what it is? We're Presbyterians. You know, you're usually going to be middle class, upper middle class, maybe, you know, if you look at it sociologically. Is that what it is? I would hope not. I would hope not. Okay. So we're going to limit ourselves here to looking at the one purpose, uh, one passage in Scripture that really speaks clearly about the purpose of speaking in tongues. And we're going to see, as I said earlier, it's a sign of judgment against unbelievers generally and against God's Old Covenant people specifically. So we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 14, 20 through 23. Um, and that's going to jump us into Isaiah 28. But just sort of a quick little historical uh, iteration for those of you that, you know, for me as a believer, I thought, 
I became a believer in a church where it was common to, to read your New Testament, and the Old Testament was good because it held the Psalms. And it told you about Israel and the future of Israel, and that's what things are really about. Um, so for me, that was really mean. Um, for me, uh, I, I had a hard time seeing tongues as anything but Acts 2, okay? Um, but as we look at redemptive history, um, if we go ahead and think about the purpose of tongues, we're going to look at some, this is reductionistic, but true. Um, purpose of tongues here is, uh, you know, judgment. Whoopsie, I don't need an E there. Uh, and then purpose of tongues here is we're going to see it's salvation. And so we have the creation and then the Babel account, right? Babel, of course, is the confusion of tongues um, because, you know, man is trying to... Uh, Enter, you know, create his way back to the Holy of Holies, basically, with a ziggurat, right? So God frustrates things. So in that case, uh, speaking, people speaking different languages, it's, it's not... Maybe this would be helpful to think about. Um, you know, we live in a world right now where I, I'm looking out amongst us, and I know some of you guys are from Wales. Uh, we, we get up and we move around. We have in the Americas, we, we move around regularly, right? We can't stay in a house for five or ten years anymore. Fact of the matter is, in all of these days that I'm putting on here, um, here back, so we're going to go from 80, 70 back, these guys were born, lived, died, did everything within like a five-mile radius of their house, okay? Even if you're, you know, 100, 200 years ago, that's largely true of us, okay? So hearing someone speaking foreign languages and stuff is relatively weird, okay? Okay, now I get it. 200 years ago, if you're in a small place in Europe, everybody speaks everybody's language. I get that. But um, historically, that's pretty much the case, okay? So the frustration of language is a sign of a curse, right? Curse because of the sin of mankind. Uh, we move forward to this one, okay? This is going to be, oh, I don't know, exile, right? So this is going to be a Syrian exile uh, of, oh boy, it would be uh, the northern kingdom, right? Okay, so the Assyrian exile, why is that weird? Why is it judgment? Well, it's because foreigners are coming into Israel, kicking you out of your land, speaking weird languages, and it's not a good thing, right? It's not a good thing. And we'll see why it's not a good thing in another place. Um, here, of course, is Judah's exile. Okay, I don't know, this is 580 B.C. This is 7-something B.C. I don't recall, to be honest. Um, but these are specific examples where in redemptive history, when people of Israel, the covenant people of God, are confronted with weird language-speaking peoples, it's a bad thing, okay? Um, it's usually a bad thing. Now, uh, for these groups, you know, the big proof text for this, of course, is Deuteronomy 28 and 29, okay? And that's, of course, dealing with the curses of the covenant. And, you know, Yahweh really opens up the can there and just, you know, the curses are cursed when you go in, cursed when you come out. The wild animals will be after you. It is, you are disobedient covenant sons and daughters and you will reap all of the plagues of Egypt. Take that, you disobedient ones, right? So the spirit of the exile in Judah, why is that? Well, it's because you did not keep the covenant, okay? So the big theme here is that it's usually a bad thing we fast forward to this green one, and of course, this is Acts 2. This is Pentecost, okay? And now, all of a sudden, we see 
a bunch of people speaking in tongues, known languages, and they're for a specific purpose. And that specific purpose is to proclaim the glory of Christ as the fulfillment of all of Israel's hopes in this one guy, okay? He is the new and true Israel. He is the one that will pull off all that was typologically foreshadowed in Israel of old, okay? And that message is preached. So it's a reverse of the curse that we see in Pentecost. But then we see again, AD 70, right? AD 70, of course, is when the temple is destroyed. Okay, temple destroyed, to the best of my knowledge, till today, not to be rebuilt, okay? I know some believers hold out a future hope for a temple being rebuilt. Personally, I'm not a fan because I think it's an insult to Christ and his work, and we're not going to get all there today, but I, I get it, and, I'll, and some of my interpretation today might actually lead, might, might, might give a strong argument for people who do believe in that, okay? And I don't mean to step on too many toes there, but um, we, we see that usually it's a bad thing, okay? But what we're going to be looking at, well, what, what, is, what is the role of tongues today? Is, the, is there a place in the church for it? What is our biblical basis for that or uh, not for that? Okay, so... First of all, the big context here, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 at breakneck speed. Okay? 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, Paul, of course, is talking about uh, spiritual gifts. Okay? And, um, you know, when Paul speaks about spiritual gifts, it's kind of the same way in which he speaks about election. Okay? Paul doesn't talk about election as though it's a frog that you pin to the wall and dissect and identify everything just so you can boast that you know it, right? Paul's not into that. Paul's point is that election has a specific pastoral purpose. It's there for your encouragement. It is to encourage the believers, okay? In the same way, these gifts exist for the encouragement of believers, okay? Spiritual gifts, whatever they are, and we're going to look at them in a minute, uh, are, are there for the purpose of being a blessing to the body of Christ. I want to be done by 10.15. All right. Um, we'll see how that goes. So, I think if on your paper I gave you some... Number one, the purpose of the gifts is to edify the body. That's the, the big thing that, that's Paul's concern. Okay? These are not neat magic tricks or fascinating personal characteristic traits that the Lord has blessed and given you with so that you can boast. So that you can say, hey, wow, look at me. I've got this new whatever. Okay. Um, so concerning spiritual gifts, Paul focuses on four truths about gifts and their use in the church. First, they're for the body. They're not for individuals. And we see that in 12.7 and 12.12, right? 12.7 says, uh, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, right? Uh, verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ, okay? So it's focusing, yes, there's, uh, multiple iterations of gifts in the body and talents, etc., but they're for the body's purpose, okay? 
Second thing we're going to notice is the church is composed of many members, but it's one body. Kind of reiterating what I just said. Um, third, that all members of the body ought to be content with their individual gifts to edify the body, right? That's 12, 28 through 31. Uh, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Okay? Or is everybody an apostle, prophet, etc.? Be content with the gifts God's given you, basically, what he's saying. Because the purpose is it's not about you, it's about the glorious body of Christ, right? Um, now, it's interesting, and uh, many commentators argue that this list that we see in uh, 1228 through 31 is actually a list in order from greater importance to less importance, okay? And, you know, you could the argument could stand because it starts out with apostles, right? Apostles are special, chosen by Christ, first-generation believers. These are not, you know, second-generation, normally ordained and called and installed kind of guys. These are people with supernatural gifts specifically for that purpose in that time, right? So you could... I buy it, okay? Um, but, uh, so, and then notice at the end of that list is tongues, right? This is one of the least of the gifts. And we'll see Paul again and again saying, I'd rather say five meaningful words than, you know, speak forever in tongues. So, it does seem to be a, a low-level uh, gift in terms of the pecking order, if you want to think of it that way. So, in 1 Corinthians 14, 20 through 23, Paul exhorts the wayward Christians, and he says, uh, Brethren, don't be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, and in your thinking be mature. The reason for this command is rooted in the Corinthians' childish fascination with tongues rather than with the more collectively edifying gifts, such as prophecy. Okay? Paul wrote to shake them out of their habit of abusing tongues. He did this through a short reminder... Uh, and interpretation of Isaiah 28, verses 11 and 12. And the NASB for Isaiah 28, verses 11 and 12 will be in Isaiah 28 for a bit. Um, translation from the NASB is, By men of strange tongues, and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people, and even so, they will not listen to me. And... In terms of our historical iterations of times when people are speaking in tongues, this is where I would locate the Isaiah 28 passage. Okay, Isaiah is prophet to uh, the southern kingdom. So Paul's citation of Isaiah, introduced with his typical, it is written, it's problematic in that when you go back and you look at Paul's quotation of the Old Testament, you go look in the Hebrew text, and it's not quite like that. And you go look in the Septuagint, and it doesn't appear to be like that either. So this has led some you know, scholars to, uh, you know, what, what is Paul quoting? Is Paul sort of doing a biblical theological uh, gloss as an apostle, as someone with greater revelation, and he's revealing Christ to the passage in a certain way? Um, is he holding on to an edition of the Septuagint that we don't have? Uh, what's going on? Is it just is it Paul's translation of the Hebrew? And you know, uh, out of the gate, this is uh, we're going to be looking at a passage. It's one of the most debated passages, and uh, uh, in in terms of Old Testament quotations. Okay, so here's some wise dude named Christopher Stanley. 
Uh, it comes out of an article called Paul in the Language of Scripture. He says this, Determining the precise relationship between the wording of 1 Corinthians 14.21 and the text of the Septuagint is one of the greatest challenges in the entire Pauline corpus. Okay? In the final analysis, the evidence of the present passage is simply inadequate to determine whether the text used by Paul represents a revision of the Greek text known through the Septuagint or a different translation entirely. Okay. Um, so we're going to look at a passage that's, uh, you know, less than clear in, in some ways, but uh, I'm going to try to tell you that it's pretty clear. All right. Um, now, in, I, in Isaiah chapter 28, of course, we have Isaiah. Isaiah is a prophet. It's the job of the prophet to remind God's people of their covenantal obligations. That is the prophetic task. You're there telling people, God has done this for you. You are his people. You need to keep the covenant, the terms of the covenant. You need to repent. You need to believe. You need to hold fast, right? All of this is the typical shtick of uh, the prophets, okay? And so Isaiah 28 is no different. Isaiah primarily warns of judgment for Judah's persistent sin. The sins cited as the cause for judgment are manifold drunken priests, prophets, and rulers. There's mockery going on, boasting in their own strength and the strength of their wicked allies for salvation. Okay? And let's just you know, get a little taste of that here. Um, Isaiah 28. Start 28.1. Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong, like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters. He casts down the earth with his hand. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot. And the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like a first ripe fig before the summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it is in his hand. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory, a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people, and a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment, and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. These also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They're swallowed. Okay, you can see there's plenty of reasons why the prophet's coming and saying, hey guys, not all, everything's not right here, okay? Everything's not right here. Well, then we're going to fast forward to, uh, uh, before we get to filthy vomit on tables. Um, <laughs> this, is, it, it's, this is typical, you know, this is the reason for the prophetic task, right? God's people are amok, right? Um, so 9 and 10. Uh, to whom will he teach knowledge? And to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from milk, those taken from the breast? For it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. For by a people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people, to whom he said, this is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose, yet they wouldn't hear. And the word of the Lord will be upon them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. That they may go and fall backward, be broken and snared and taken. Okay, um, that's... You know, that is uh, the language of exile here. And, you know, we, we see a couple things. And this is where we're going to get into the Hebrew. Um, I am not a fan of busting out Hebrew. One, because I don't think it's good. It did, whatever. Um, two, because I'm not as familiar with it as I used to be. And that was bad when I was. 
Um, but this is a fascinating passage, and there's a real good take-home meaning for this, because I hope you're all confused, and if that's the case, I've achieved my purpose, okay? So the passage that we have here in that, that line upon line, precept upon precept, and I don't mean this in any, uh, there, there's a, a, a serious interpretive intention here, okay? Um, so the passage we have is, you know, sav la sav, sav la sav, kav la kav, kav la kav, zayir sham, zayir sham. And I just read that because it is probably as useful to you as it was useful to the original readers, okay? And let me sell you on that idea. So most interpreters uh, in your Bible, I noticed we did line upon line, precept upon precept is what they ended up going with, and that's the traditional argument. Um, but it's really grasping at straws and guessing and hoping for the best, okay? And sometimes that happens when you're dealing with you know, ancient languages. And uh, the interpretation I'm going to go with um, is, uh, you know, this... These words aren't as clear, so I'm, I'm going to bust out some lexicographical stuff on you um, so you know I'm not making this up. Um, you know, the Hebrew letter constructions uh, sav and kav, these guys, right, sav and kav. Um, put in English there for you. Um, uh, they sort of have a... Just listen to that again. Just try to appreciate this. Sav la sav, sav la sav, kav la kav, kav la kav. Here a little, there a little, right? Um, so a lot of the, uh, it, it's not terribly clear, even if you do read and speak Hebrew, okay? Um, the, the issue here is, and, and lots of the interpretive options are like, well, it could be gibberish, okay? The brown driver brig, I'm pretty sure that's it. Uh, the Brown Driver Biggs lexicon argues that, hey, this is purposeful gibberish, okay? Other people have suggested these are kind of like if you're a, a language teacher of some sort teaching kids to read, you teach them onsets in rhymes, right? So maybe like, you know, sat, sit, what, set, right? And then you could have rhymes at the end, different sounds, Sam, Pam, Ma'am, Cam, it's kind of like this elementary practice with language, saying nonsense words just to show your childishness, right? And so the point that some interpreters, I'm one of them, is pointing out is the people of Israel in this passage, I think it's verse 9 or 10, they come up in their words, the prophet is uh, in verse 10. Okay, these, these are the people that God's going to teach knowledge to and to whom God's going to explain the message. These were just weaned from the mother's breast. Um, these are the people who say, oh, well, Sam, Cam, Pam, Ma'am, Bam, right? Uh, you know, that, that kind of... Childish repetition, right? Meaningless gibberish, which is really preschool level. Okay, um, and by the way, would that fit in well with people who are, I don't know, so drunk they're vomiting on tables and swaggering with strong drink and reeling with wine and disregarded the Lord of the Covenant and really don't care? Sure, I'd buy that, sure. Um, so that's sort of uh, the take on that. Um, 
So, you know, the academic approach to that is saying some prefer to see them as an aid for learning the alphabet, wherein a vowel and consonant are added to another nice unpronounceable letter. Um, Wayne Grudem and a guy named Halo take that point. Um, other people, like uh, Bruegman, he takes the idea that it's, uh, these are just nonsense syllables. And I think certainly that's the case. But, you know, it, it's hard when you sell a Bible to have, you know, nonsense syllables in there. So it's line and... Uh, uh, no, I mean, it, it's, it's a difficult passage, okay? Um, and, you know, your, your Bible notes would be full of a lot to have to explain, look, they're speaking nonsense on purpose because they've broken the covenant and they hate Yahweh, okay? So, uh, yeah. The Brown Driver Biggs lexicon goes with, this is merely a mimicry of Isaiah's words, perhaps senseless, okay? Um so the most likely view is that this is unintelligible gibberish, roughly equivalent to English blah, 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 okay? Um, now, you're wondering, how is that helpful to me? How did you just waste my time? Well, I think it's a great illustration of the anatomy of sin, right? When we take into account our covenant Lord, and we break his law, and we spit in his face, and we don't care, we're like belligerent fools uh, who... Say things like Sav la Sav, Kav la Kav, Sav la Sav, Kav la Kav, Mir, or Zaire Sham, right? Um, so where does this lead you? <laughs> I've argued that obscure words in the context, rule and line, they're not tenable, and have instead inserted, asserted that we have purposeful gibberish, right? Does this make the passage any clearer? No, I think it does. At issue in Judah's reply is not just their frustration with and complaining about the burden of the prophet's laws, neither the unintelligible speech was it just merely immature elementary recital of one's ABCs to mock the prophet's simplicity. If it was just these people, you know, saying, oh, the burden's too heavy, which is the, the rule and precept and line approach, right? The burden of the prophet's demands is too heavy, right? Or, uh, if it comes down to just we're, we're being childish and reciting our ABCs, it's entirely likely we've seen in the history of Israel, God is a gracious God. He continues to offer opportunities to repent and talk about salvation. We did see some hope of salvation in the passage we just read, but we don't see that here in terms of these covenant breakers, right? The big issue that we see here <coughs> is that they're holding God's covenant and God's Covenant prosecutor, his prophet, Isaiah, in contempt. Okay? So if you want a parallel passage to think about what happens when God's people knowingly, openly, consistently, in your facedly, blah, 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 idly, disown the God of the covenant. I would suggest a good historical precedent. Another good example, anyhow, is Elisha in the Bears, right? Go on up, you bald head, right? Repeat that miracle of Elijah. Go ahead and go on up into heaven. I heard about that. That would be a fun story, right? Um, the point of that passage is, no. These bears come out and they maul those youngsters, right? Why? Because they have spat upon the face of their Lord and his covenant and everything that it stands for, okay? And so in a similar sense, I would, I would encourage you to think about, you know, that this is the idea that's going on here. They are holding God's covenant in contempt. And so as, as a response and as a result, God responds to them in verses 11 through 13. Very well then, 
With foreign lips and strange tongues, God will speak to this people, to whom he said, This is the resting place, let the weary rest, and this is the place of repose. But they would not listen. So then the word of the Lord to them will be, God's going to respond back to them with Savla Sav, Kavla Kav, Savla Sav, Kavla Kav, Zaire Sham, here a little, there a little, okay? So that they will go and fall backwards. They'll be injured and snared and captured. This is a clear illustration that at least in this passage with Isaiah 28, tongues is not a good thing, okay? It is the, it is the outworking of receiving the judgment of God for breaking his covenant. Since Judah holds God and his messenger in contempt, this unintelligible childlike babble they imagine coming from the prophet will become a reality in their hearing by a foreign power coming and overcoming their, uh, their cities. When Judah hears sav la sav, a foreign language, that's what foreign languages sound like to me usually, blah, 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 means something to somebody, not to me, doesn't help me, um, It'll be a sign that God is now holding them in contempt for breaking his covenant. The foreign armies whereby Judah will hear Savla Sav will not be like the prophet Isaiah, someone who wishes for their repentance and their restoration and their renewal. No, they will be there to injure, to snare, and to capture Judah. Now, to understand the severity of these words in 11, chapter, uh, verses 11 through 13, we need to remember that Judah, the southern kingdom of the divided monarchy, is God's son, Exodus 4.22. God's wife, Ezekiel 16.8, or his covenant-bound people. As such, Isaiah is coming as God's prosecutor for Judah's covenantal unfaithfulness. When Isaiah comes, he comes in the place of God, with the word of God on his lips, and his word is to be heeded because it's God's very word. Not only did Judah break God's commands, they refused to trust in the remedy for their sins. Verse 12 notifies us that God had provided a resting place and commended the weary to rest. The rest previously offered to them is clear in chapter 30, verse 15. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust in your is your strength, but you would have none of it. I think it's 28.15 maybe, I don't know. Um, so it becomes clear in this context that Judah's childish mocking babble is a casting off of God's covenant of lordship instead of repenting in faith. In the place of God's covenant of lordship, Judah's leaders boast about, we've made a covenant with death. With the grave, we've made an agreement. When an overwhelming, overwhelming scourge sweeps by, we, it cannot touch us, for we've made a lie our refuge and falsehood our hiding place. Now, they're talking, you know, the, the threat of, you know, people coming and judging you. Isaiah says we've made a scourge with death, and most interpreters interpret that as we've made a covenant or a treaty with Egypt, Okay? And Egypt is powerful. We'll be safe with Egypt. Now, if you are a believer in the Lord of hosts, you know that does not hold any weight. Okay? They're boasting in their ability to have military arrangements that are going to somehow protect them. So Isaiah perceives the heart of Judea's, uh, Judah's leaders and accurately states what they had done. Not only did they break God's covenant, they established a covenant with death, Egypt, hoping that they would endure the uh, coming scourge. In light of such open defiance to God's covenant, his response to them in verses 11 through 13 came as no surprise. For God had previously warned them, oh, hey, that whole idea of I am a jealous God, right? What did Israel, what did, 
God's wife, God's son, what did they just do? They said, oh, we need protection, let's go to Egypt, right? That'll arouse jealousy, right? Okay, just a restatement of my thesis. Um, Let's look at this idea of the hope of the remnant in 28 verses 5 and 6. Um, there is hope in this passage uh, of a remnant. And also in verse 16 where it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. And of course we know that that cornerstone is Jesus. The same cornerstone is mentioned in Isaiah chapter 8 verses 13 and 14. But in Isaiah, it's sort of depicted in full sanctuary form, not just as a foundation. Isaiah 8, 13, 14 reads, The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. And He will be a sanctuary. But for both houses of Israel, He will be a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, He'll be a trap and a snare. Certainly, when Isaiah mentioned that the Lord would be a sanctuary, the people of Judah assimilated that data into their theological grid. Namely, they'd think, well, God's our sanctuary. He's in the midst of his people. We have the temple. Of course, God is our sanctuary. Yet this talk of laying a foundation for a people who already have a physical temple built where they understand that God is present, what is this talk about a foundation? It ought to have seemed odd to them. For we're Jacob's descendants. We're Jacob. God is our God. God says he's the stone of Israel in Genesis. We already have a cornerstone for a foundation. Did they not? They already had a sanctuary built for that foundation. Did they not? That same stone of Israel had them build the beautiful temple of Solomon. Did he not? That temple stood in their midst during Isaiah's ministry, previous to the Assyrian and Babylonian invasion. Did it not? God dwelled in their midst, didn't he? While the message of judgment in 28, 13 through 15 likely seemed clear enough, verse 16 proved puzzling. It says, talk about laying a foundation. We already got one, right? Hmm. The apostles, however, understood verse 16 of Isaiah 28 to speak of a temple that is not made with hands, nor is it located in Palestine. Peter confesses Christ as the cornerstone of a new temple, made of living stones, namely the church of Christ, 1 Peter chapter 1. Paul speaks similarly when, this, when he states that the saints, <coughs> saints are part of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, to whom you're being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Christ's apostles, therefore, interpreted Isaiah 28.16 as referring to a temple that had nothing to do with the old covenant cultus. In the first century, the ultimate covenantal curse came upon this unrepentant people. God abandons his earthly temple. And of course, when we look at that passage, you think of Jesus in the later chapters of Matthew when he says, See, I leave to you your house empty, right? And we see that, you know, when, we, when, when Christ has died, right? We see that the temple curtain is torn in two. There's two, you know, basic interpretations of what that means. It's 
you know, temple curtains torn in two because it gives God's people access to the Holy of Holies, and by faith in Christ Jesus, that's your reality. It's certainly true. But another take on that is that temple curtain is torn because nobody's home, right? And that's how you would take that when you look at the passages, uh, you know, that deal with Jesus saying that your house will be left to you empty. Certainly we know that the typological purpose of the temple is pointing forward to the coming of the Son of Man as our Redeemer and as the one true Israel uh, is fulfilled in Christ. There is no need for a physical temple. So that desolate house later also we see, you know, after Jesus talks about, you know, Jesus says it's going to be left empty here, Pentecost comes and there's this transition period, right? It's not for another 70 years that physically that temple is destroyed. Again, if you're a good, faithful Jew, trusting in the Messiah to come at this point in time, when the Romans come in and destroy your temple, what are they doing? Speaking a foreign language, right? It's not a good thing. So how does Paul use Isaiah 28 um, to exhort the Corinthians towards maturity in their use of tongues? And we're looking at 1 Corinthians 14, 20 through 23 here. In our previous discussion, a little bit of 1 Corinthians 14, 20 through 23, we mentioned the uncertainty as to the source of Paul's quotation of Isaiah, right? Whatever the solution is, one thing is for sure. Paul omits... Isaiah 28, verse 12, right? This is the passage, 28, verse 12 is where he says, To whom he said, this is a resting place, let the weary rest, and this is the place of repose. Paul doesn't quote that. Hmm. Dick Gaffin, uh, Westminster Seminary Prof. East, uh, he argues Paul seems to imply that the message of rest is itself the content of the foreign speech, and therefore he didn't quote that. That is, the preaching of the gospel is the content of the foreign speech. That is, Pentecost is the purpose of the foreign speech when we hit the New Covenant era, specifically when the church is getting a jump start in the Acts uh, account. Acts 2.11 seems to support this statement. For the Spirit enabled some to speak the wonders of God in foreign tongues while others heard merely drunken gibberish. Some heard the very word of life in their own language. Others heard kavlakav, savlasav. Could you imagine if this room was on fire? Bad illustration, but there's a fire extinguisher there. You don't know how to use a fire extinguisher, but if it's a small trash fire over in the corner, if you could hear the words that are coming out of my mouth, I could communicate to you how to save us all from being burnt up in the room, right? Hey, grab that red thing, pull the hose out, point it forward, pull the pin, push, aim, we're all good, right? But if all you hear is savla sav, kavla kav, savla it is not good news to you, okay? It is a curse. And so at this point in redemptive history, what we see is... This tongues phenomenon, it's a two-edged sword, especially when you consider there's this overlap of 
people that are still worshiping in the, in the, the temples, people that are worshiping in synagogues, and Paul's going and preaching the gospel every Saturday, and he's calling people to repentance and faith, and so that speaking in tongues could be a two-edged sword, okay? It could be, holy cow, every time we've seen speaking in tongues, this is, this is a curse. Wouldn't it be better if you spoke five meaningful words? Red, hose, pull pin, push down, aim. That is useful. I could go on with my sabla sabs forever, and it's useless, right, in terms of accomplishing some meaningful purpose. There's nothing worse than being able to hear the word of life but not respond. Paul's purpose in 1 Corinthians 14 is that they might be mature and that they might not abuse or neglect God's good gifts. Paul's concern for the Corinthian church is eminently pastoral, as is seen in verse 23. So if the whole assembly comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and a non-member or an unbeliever comes in, won't they say you're mad? Paul didn't want to see this potentially harmful gift exercised in a way that could have caused a non-member or an unbeliever in the church to stumble due to the media of the message. Paul was eager to ensure that the only stumbling block was the message of Christ crucified itself. Due to this practical concern about the judgmental aspect of tongues, Paul gives the clearest New Testament teaching on the purpose of tongues in chapter 14, verses 22. And I wish I had more time for this. This is my translation. It's plausible, but it's not usually the one that you'll find. Therefore, tongues are a sign, not for believers, but against unbelievers. Okay? So I took that against there. It's the dative of disadvantage. And my, my justification for that, and, you know, theologians do this, is, uh, you know, sometimes there's, there's genuine possibilities with language and its intention, right? And when you add together, hey, this is the passage, this is the flavor that Paul is dealing with all through Isaiah 28. Isn't it reasonable that certainly tongues are not a good thing? And so there's a possible linguistic opportun- uh, option. Certainly from this conclusion of Paul, this conclusion of Paul is consistent with the bulk of the scriptures teaching on tongues. From the inception of foreign tongues at the Tower of Babel to the tongue speaking that persisted in the apostolic age, unintelligible tongues were primarily designed for punishment and not conversion. Therefore, tongues in Paul's day still function as a sign of judgment on unbelievers, as at Babel, and covenant breakers, as in Isaiah 28. Although this study on the judgmental aspect of tongues in the biblical uh, corpus is not exhaustive, some general guidelines for further study can be established on the basis of this. One, when assessing the biblical teaching on tongues, one must acknowledge that the general and old covenant judgmental aspects of tongues were still in effect in the apostolic age. Two, if one aspect of the gift of tongues was judgment, maturity is to be attained before exercising the gift in the apostolic age, and uh, or even if you believe now is the case, you still got to take that into account. Three, Isaiah 28, 24, and 25 may fit in well with the understanding of a future hope for Israel. Now, you guys have heard my study on Romans 11. I don't believe there's a future hope for Israel outside of repentance and faith in Christ, and dispensationalists would agree to that too, but I'm not talking about a physical land hope. I'm not a fan of that. Now, let's imagine that that is the case. Okay, that we're looking for a rebuilding of a temple of some sort. Okay? Is it wise, if we're looking forward to a rebuilt temple, 
with Jewish people, is it wise for us to employ a old covenant sign of the curse on them as they come in there? It's sort of interesting, you know. For many dispensationalist folks, you know, that, that's a, a big hope, right? And so for many dispensationalist folks, uh, that's something to keep in mind if, if you are of that persuasion for that practice. It's a double-edged sword still if you're of that viewpoint. Tongues. Um, my view, and I, the confession's view, is that there is a specific redemptive historical purpose, and that specific redemptive historical purpose is to jumpstart the church. We have a bunch of people who spent three years in the best seminary class conceivable, and lo and behold, they all abandoned Jesus. But there's a resurrection. People hear this message. There's miracles. There's healings. There's people sharing the good news of the resurrected Christ in all kinds of tongues and languages. And that is the jumpstart of the early church. That's about all I got for you today. More suggestive than exhaustive, but uh, something worth saying. Keith, you want to close in prayer? Keith disappeared. Keith is gone. Manuel, would you like to close in prayer? Dear God, I thank Mm-hmm. Christ's name,